reading for this morning is found in the book of Acts, the first chapter. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses. And this will begin a series of uh, messages on Sunday morning in the book of Acts. Just a little by way of introduction. The book of Acts is called, the book, is called Acts because it is the record of the actions of the apostles. It is probably the, in fact, not probably, it is absolutely the most complete historical record of the beginnings of the Lord's churches, in, more so than, histor than uh, secular history. Uh, it is a, it's a pretty complete record. It has a lot of detail in it. It is a book of history. There's no question about that. It, it's a, we accept that as a historical account. There is a considerable amount of secular history uh, that coincides with much of what has been written here. For example, the, uh, the deaths of some of the uh, apostles uh, have a secular historical uh, confirmation as well as, uh, in fact, more so than, in the, in, than here. But uh, secular history really begins to take hold uh, after the, toward the end of the first century. And this, of course, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts is written for, uh, covers a span of about 30 years, uh, which would have been uh, the middle third of the first century primarily. Uh, so that all having been said, what we're going to read here uh, this morning is the, is the only place in the Bible where the ascension into heaven of Jesus Christ is recorded. Uh, it was witnessed by a number of people and therefore has validity. We will cover that territory and make a few other uh, remarks as we go along. Now, it's a long introduction before we read this, so let's look at uh, the very first verse of uh, chapter 1 of the book of Acts. We'll read through verse 14. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, 
which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went into an upper room where abode Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon uh, the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our God, we, we confess to you that we love you and ask now that you would that you would quiet our minds and draw our attention unto your word and unto the one whom your word reveals, your lovely son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that he would have glory here this morning and that we would indeed be moved to reflect upon uh, why we are here and, and what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners such as we, and that he would be glorified then in the midst of this his church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Just some technical points before we uh, begin. Uh, Theophilus, I don't know who Theophilus is, but the uh, former treatise, of course, is uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the writer, the historian, the recorder of the book of Acts is Luke, the physician. Luke, as I'm sure many of you know, was not an apostle, but was very in very close company with the apostles. Uh, he was a physician and evidently accompanied uh, the apostles along because one, because he was a believer, and the others because his services were no doubt needed from time to time. But he was the historian. He was the one who kept the record of this book. And the former treatise is, re is a reference back to his writing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I wrote that one. Uh, I've made that one. Uh, of all that Jesus began to teach and to do until the day he was taken up out of the uh, taken up from them which is recorded here in the very first chapter Theophilus is a, an interesting name just for uh, just for your information uh, Theo which is a Greek word for God and Phylus or phileo is a Greek word for brotherly love or love so this name really probably might not even be referring to a to a particular person, but to all those who love God, because that's really what this name means, uh, a lover of God. And uh, Otheophilus is the, a phrase which, which simply would translate out a, a dear friend who loves God. And so uh, this is written to anyone who loves God. Uh, and, and those who would receive it uh, as such would, would certainly learn a great deal about God, because this is the... This is the beginning of time. Second th uh, beginning of, of uh, some very wonderful times. If you were there uh, when these things were beginning to happen, you would, you would be, uh, there's no question you'd be taken up with a considerable amount of excitement. These were heady times. Uh, very soon, uh, we'll read in the next chapter, uh, there would be a manifestation of God's power upon this group uh, that we read about here in the 14th verse, uh, all the apostles and, and others who continued uh, with one accord in prayer 
there were women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Some of the brethren of Jesus was there. And, and uh, so there were in total a, a number of 120 people there, which we shall see in the ensuing verses next week. Uh, another thing that I'd like for you to notice that in the third verse of the book of Acts is the only place in all the Bible that tells us how long Jesus was on this earth after his resurrection. The only place, 40 days. Uh, and, and that's clearly defined here. And, and he was witnessed. His, his, his presence was witnessed by upwards to 500 people. There were more than 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is 500 people who saw him before his crucifixion, saw him at his crucifixion, and saw him subsequent to his crucifixion. 500 witnesses. That's a lot of veracity. That's a lot of confirmation. And on the basis of the witnesses alone, we have enough evidence to believe that this is a historical fact. And I do want to impress upon you that, that while it is true that believers in Jesus Christ, those who are born again, are called upon to believe in trust in him and exercise faith in the doing of it, we are not called upon to, be, to believe blindly. There are many infallible proofs, and that's a, an expression that was stated right here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, there is historical evidence to the truthfulness of the historical character of Jesus Christ, what he did, what he said, uh, who he was, what happened to him, and historical evidence and proof of his resurrection. So Jesus Christ was a very real historical character. The Bible is a very real historical book. Incidentally, I don't know how many of you happened to be home last night, but if you watch CBS from, from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock, there was a, a, a program produced there about the Bible is it true, and it went about, took four incidents of the Old Testament, uh, and there were those who said that this impossible, couldn't be true. These are all brainy people, you know, all, all with PhDs and, and, uh, and better, and, and some said it wasn't true, and others said it was, and then it was dramatized, and one was David and Goliath, the other was Samson, and the other was pulling down the, the house, the other were Ad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and uh, the fourth one was Moses receiving the Ten Commandments uh, in Mount Horeb, or in Mount Sinai, or whatever it is that you want to call the mount. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, CBS produced that program, which I found to be pretty interesting, and, and uh, uh, they produced it to, make, to, to put the Bible story, those particular stories, in a very favorable light, uh, which was kind of refreshing because we don't get a lot of Bible uh, uh, being presented by the uh, broadcast medium in a favorable light at all, uh, at least in a secular, by secular people. So I, 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 but the point is, and I guess really the only reason I told you that is because uh, I believe that those events were historical events. I mean, we, we can't, we, we are not required to spiritualize everything that we read about in the Bible as saying, well, it has real spiritual meaning, but it had no, it had no historical fact connected to it. There's a lot of historical fact connected to the Word of God, and certainly that is true in the book of Acts, which is a historical book. Third thing I wish to point out to you is in the sixth verse, uh, they asked, those who were with Jesus Christ at the point of his ascension, asked, would he at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And by the way, uh, for those of you who are not initiated in the Gospels, uh, this is a question that was asked of Jesus often. Uh, the Lord Jesus was a very uh, uh, unique person. Jesus of Nazareth was an unusual man 
in that he was very charismatic, obviously. The, he, he was brilliant in his, in his words. He was sage in his wisdom, uh, well beyond his young years. Uh, he was powerful in his display of his heavenly credentials. Uh, he was a very unique human being, and of course he would attract large numbers of people uh, to him, and he did. Uh, and when he did att attract large numbers of people to him, of course, he, he uh, engendered a great deal of <coughs> animosity by those who were being attracted, uh, who were having people attracted away from them, namely the, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, who uh, saw Jesus as a, as a threat to them, as a, as a people, as a nation. Uh, still in all, he was a, a very powerful historical person, and when his apostles would ask him, because he was so, did display so much charisma and so much power, they say, "Are you going to be the king now?" They already they already figured him to be the Messiah, and they were already they had been live, living now for almost well between the the Grecian rule and the Roman rule, uh, the Hebrew people have been living almost three hundred and some odd years under the dominion of a foreign power, and they were scattered about in the land of Palestine. And they wanted, they wanted to have Israel restored to its former great glory under the glory that it had under David and Solomon. And, and, so they were, and, and that was the promise that, that they had been told uh, by the prophets. The prophets saw the, a coming king. And the prophets also saw a coming sufferer. And they had a difficult time reconciling those two, the ancient prophets. And, and certainly the scribes and the Pharisees didn't understand it at all. Uh, they, they understood... That it would, they, they couldn't reconcile the suffering person and the kingly person into one person, so they made it two persons. They said there's going to be a, a suffering Messiah, and then there's going to come after him a ruling Messiah. But the Lord Jesus Christ is both persons, and, and that's clearly defined, and he said so himself. They asked him, are you going to establish the kingdom now? He said, no, it is not for you to know now. Uh, that is given into the power of my father. He told them that many times. And he told it to him once again, and he didn't scold them for asking if there was going to be a kingdom. Uh, he, he just simply told them their curiosity as to when it would be was something that he could not tell them because he did not know that had been withheld from him in his humanity, and only the Father, his Father which was in heaven, knew. That's why when you, when you see these, these, I consider them to be, spiritual radicals who write these books about the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come at such and such a day, at such and such a time, under such and such circumstances. There's been a couple of books in the past four or five years probably uh, spread about among the Christian community, evangelical Christian community, and a lot of people believed it or were at least uneasy about it. They weren't sure. And I can only tell you that anytime anybody puts a firm date on the arrival of Jesus Christ, you know, you absolutely know, there's no way they could know. Jesus Christ himself didn't know so there's no way some other human being is going to know. I don't care what formula they use to figure it out. They just don't know. I'm almost positive that when a man fixes a particular date in a moment, that the Lord Jesus for Christ for sure isn't going to come at that time. He isn't going to make, he isn't going to make that man look like he knew more than Christ himself knew while he was in his human form. Anyway, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the Father's put that in his own power and not in anyone else's power. fourth thing I wish to point out to you from this passage of scripture, and these are all preliminary things, is that the Lord Jesus Christ told them that they are to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise 
from the Father. And that was a promise of power. It's not the first time they were told this. They were told this on, other, on, on two other occasions. But in this particular occasion, it's very clear. He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And after you do receive that power, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. If you read in the, in the book of Acts, you will see that from a historical perspective, that's exactly the way the gospel was disseminated. It was first in Jerusalem, and then it went in Judea, which is the surroundings, the environs of Jerusalem, and then it went to the, it went to the north of Jerusalem, into Samaria, and then it went uh, from there everywhere went into the Gentile world, uh, and, and, and it's still going, still going on today. Uh, the, the, exact, the exact thing that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ said, they were to wait for the power in order that they could, for power in order that, that they would have the ability to do this. And after he told them to, that they, that's what they were to do, by the way, that isn't the first time he told them that either. He told them that on at least one other occasion, which we will investigate in a few moments, and that was in the so-called Great Commission in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Uh, at any rate, after he said that, he was taken up. Everybody stood around gawking while he was going up. I mean, if you were there, you would have gawked. I would have gawked. We all would have gawked at, at, the, at this, this man who is dead and now alive that we loved uh, just taking, being taken up from our view into the heavens. And so they stood there gawking, and, and there were two angels stood by and told them, what are you gawking at? You have work to do. Get going. Go back now and, and get busy about the things that he told you to do. And so they did. They returned to Jerusalem, and all 11 of the apostles were there. Remember, one had, had ceased to be an apostle. He was dead, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. His name was Judas Iscariot. Uh, there were two Judas in his band. Judas Iscariot was the one who betrayed him, and uh, the, all the others were there, and they are listed in verse 13 of our text. And finally, I would like, uh, in our preliminary remarks, I would like to fix upon uh, the uniqueness of verse 14. Uh, simply says that they went back to this place, to this, this room, and uh, the apostles were there and other people were there, numbering 120, I mentioned to you earlier. And they continued in that room, in that place. Uh, it says in the King James, with one accord in prayer and supplication. And it names the fact that there were women there and Mary was there, uh, identifies which Mary, uh, Mary the mother of Jesus and others. By the way, the word which is translated accord in the King James comes from the Greek word uh, from which the English word, our English word theme comes. In fact, the Greek word sounds a great deal like it. It's thema, it's, uh, and, it, and, it, and it simply means that they, they, they were all together and there was a, a singular theme there. I, I, I wonder if you could guess what the theme was that was there. You have to understand that there was a great deal of information yet coming to them which they had not yet had. They, they were doctrinally, they were neophytes. In fact, they were infants doctrinally. All the doctrine they had was based on, on the Old Testament scriptures, which foretold the Christ and their experiences with Jesus Christ. Not that their experiences with Christ were doctrinally uh, uh, empty. They, obviously, he told them a great number of things. But if you look in the Gospels, you will find that 
Mostly what Christ instructed them about were functional matters, matters on how to live with one another and, and, uh, and uh, how they were to conduct themselves as his disciples and things of that nature. And they were not, they were not uh, developed doctrinally because, uh, because the, church, the churches themselves had not yet been developed uh, to any, any point where they could even begin to teach doctrine. The apostles themselves who were going to be the purveyors of doctrine in the first century themselves had doctrine to learn yet. And how would they learn that doctrine? They would learn that doctrine uh, through the good offices, influences, and teaching of the Holy Spirit of God. So what was the one theme that they had in that little church? Well, the obvious, if, if they, were, they continued in one theme, there had to be a basic lack of disagreement if there's going to be one theme. And I don't know of anything that can overcome disagreement except love. I, I, don't, I don't know of anything else that can do that. And I'll tell you why. Because if, if 120 people, that's not that big a number, but it's not that small a number. 120 people, 120. I mean, we, we had 80 members in this church and we couldn't, we, we couldn't keep it together in one theme. Uh, so 120 would be quite a task, wouldn't you think? And especially so, it would be um, uh, prior to the, uh, to the falling of the Holy Spirit upon that congregation. But the only thing that can... Uh, the, the only way that that could possibly happen is if, 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 if everyone who were in that number were willing to give themselves up. It's the only way it can happen. Do you know that? Do you know that that biblical love, New Testament love, uh, only exists when the lover, the one who gives the love, gives himself up. It's the only way it can happen. It can't happen any other way. You got to give yourself up uh, because if you're going to protect your interests and protect your viewpoints and and protect whatever it is that you think you need to protect. Uh, then you're not going to be a lover because you aren't going to give it up. You won't give it up. You haven't given it up. I'm not saying that there are some things that aren't uh, that are worth not giving up. That's not the point. The point is, however, that that in most cases, at least when you're talking about church harmony, most of the things that cause the disruptions are things that could easily be given up and wouldn't make a bit of difference in the doctrine or the practices of the church of that particular body. Uh, but So there are other things to get hung on to, little personal things. She said this, he said that, I said this, you said that. Uh, and, and, and it goes on, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally you get yourself backed into a corner where you can't give it up. You just can't give it up. And if you can't give it up, you can't love. And if you can't love, you're going to be a dysfunction and a disharmonious influence in your own church. You're going to be a destroyer of your own church if you can't give it up. At any rate, that's what happened here. They all continued in one with one theme. They had one overriding theme that overrode everything else and enabled them to give up everything else whenever it had to be given up. And you know, it, it's it. I, I I talk about marriage often and 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 do premarital counseling and this kinds of thing. And I can tell you that, and I'm sure those of you who have been married successfully know that the only way that a marriage can survive is if there is a disruption. In a marriage, in a relationship, 
in a marital relationship, there's a disruption. If something comes up that disrupts it, somebody better give up. Somebody's got to give up. You can, there's no way that, that you're going to sit down and rationally say, now let's, let's talk about this rationally, and I'll give a little here, and you give a little there. Because no one ever does that. Someone's got to give it up. Otherwise, it's going to work. It's the same way here. It's exactly the same way here. Give it up. Hey, what are you carrying around that's so important now? Give it up. It's not that big a thing. You can give it up. The Lord will enable you to give it up. I mean, you don't want to be responsible for causing major disruptions and dysfunctions and hurting yourself and hurting others. Yeah. Give it up. And love. Anyway, I wanted to take a few moments to to make a point about, since this is the inception of New Testament instruction on church life and church doctrine and church function, I thought we ought to take a few moments to see how it all began. And with that in view, I would like you to turn to, I guess, probably the best place to look first is in Matthew chapter chapter 16. We won't spend a lot of time here. I just wanted for us to turn there so that we at least might grasp uh, what it is that that we believe here as a church and why we believe what we believe. There probably is a little bit of rubbish I ought to put truck out of here before we even read this, though, because there are so many preconceived ideas about about, uh, the events that we're going to read about in the 16th chapter here. So let me just make a few flat-out statements that will be, would be very easy for me to prove from the Bible and from history. So if anybody wishes to, to uh, take me to task for it, I'd be glad to discuss it with you. So let me just start out with the statements. Before I read this, Peter wasn't the first pope of the church. One. Two, there is no such thing as the church, unless you talk about this church as the church, and Maranatha Baptist Church as the church, or some other scriptural Baptist church is the church. There would be the church in that place. But there's no such thing as the church that embraces all churches. So that's, that's rubbish. That's the stuff we have to get rid of before we even begin to read this. So Peter wasn't the first pope. No such thing as the church. Therefore, the connotation of a universal visible church or, the univer- or a universal invisible church has no basis, in fact, in the Bible. In fact, it's in total opposition to what the Bible teaches. So, now I said all of that because I, I want you to read this with a less, hopefully with a less uh, jaundiced eye. Peter does play a role in these verses that we're going to read. There's a big problem. The problem was that among his apostles, they were always, they were always vying for who was going to be the greatest. Uh, even... Even James and John's mother went to the Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 and politicked him, tried to get him to make sure that her sons would sit on his right hand when he established his kingdom. And things of that nature. They're always jockeying for preeminence in, in the ranks. And, and as a result, oftentimes, uh, they would lose sight of the fact of who Jesus Christ was and they certainly didn't have any idea. They didn't truly didn't have much of an idea at all of what he had come to do. They, they didn't recognize that he was going to die. In fact, every time he even alluded to it in, in an obscure way, 
And they became very confused and very antagonistic and didn't want to hear about it. Uh, nobody likes to hear negative things. And, and, and you don't want, you know, if, if you know someone and, and you love someone, even if it's an older person, say a parent or a grandparent, and they talk about their death, you don't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear that. And they, they didn't want to hear it. That's human nature. They just didn't want to hear it. So, here, but among them, among these, these 12 men, 12 at this particular time in, in Matthew, the most impetuous and most vocal was a man named Peter, Simon, the son of Barjona, uh, of Jonah, Simon Barjona. Bar means son of Simon of uh, the son of Barjona, a uh, son of Jonah. He he was he was the most vocal, and the Lord Jesus Christ asked these men a general question. Well, let's read it, verse 13, 16 Matthew. Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, and this is what he said. He said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. Others say you are Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he charged that he, and then he charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. All right. Uh, a few things I'll point out to you very quickly. Uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the rock in this particular, the first rock is a reference to Peter. Uh, Peter's name is Petros, and Petros means rock. That's what it means. Uh, that would be like uh, uh, if you named one of your sons Rock. I know a guy named Rock. That's his given name, Rock. Uh, I met him a few years ago. You met him. I met him on a, on a cruise, and uh, his name was Rock. I, I, that's a, how come you named Rock? He says, he says, that's the name my father gave me. I said, how do you spell it? He says, R-O-C-K. So it was Rock, and it was, really was Rock, and that's what he was named. At any rate, that was Peter's name. His name was Rock. However, the Lord Jesus Christ continues that I will build, uh, and upon this rock, thou art Peter, that's Petros, rock, and upon this rock, the rock that he's referring to here is, is, a, is a different, it's the same Greek word with a different ending, which obviously has a different conclusion. Thou art Petra, which is not diminutive, but maximized. So uh, Peter is a rock. And the rock, Peter's name is rock, and the rock that he, the church was going to be built on was a large, it's a substrata. It's the substrate that lies underneath the soil. If you, if you build a house in some areas and you go to excavate, you'll find in some places you can't even excavate for a basement because there's so much rock there. Well, that's really what it's talking about. It's talking about the rock that's a substrate beneath the surface. Solid stuff. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you're Peter, you're a rock. Branch it. And Peter was a rock. Don't, 
Don't diminish Peter's role. You'll see it very much in the book of Acts as well as a newcomer, relatively newcomer, whose name was Paul. Uh, but Peter was a rock, but the rock that the church was going to be built on was this, this huge substrata, and, and I'll tell you who that is or what that is in a moment. He says, And the gates of death, or Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it, which means, it's very simple, the church that was sitting at Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father, those 120 people in that room, was a church. That was a church. You'll see that they acted like a church next week. And that church had as has had as his foundation not Peter all the apostles were there Peter wasn't the foundation for that church the foundation for that church is Jesus Christ and nobody else no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus uh, that's a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3 verse 11 as it launches into a description of what I consider to be the Lord's church's work on this earth so the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for the church. So here it is. Peter was a rock. The, the church was built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. Peter became a very important spokesman in first century Christianity, uh, as did the Apostle Paul. And uh, the church was built. Authority was given to it. I will give thee the keys of the kingdom. By the way, the very same expressions are given in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared uh, to ten apostles one e the evening of the day of his resurrection. And he said basically the same thing to them. He gave them the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And he said, and I give you whatsoever you shall retain in heaven shall be retained on earth. Whatsoever you remit on earth shall be remitted in heaven. And he said basically the same thing. Which is keys, by the way, uh, for our symbols of authority. A keeper of the keys is a, is a person who has authority. He has authority to lock things and unlock things. And that's really why the Lord Jesus Christ gave that expression to that little church of 12 men at that particular time. Uh, just by way of incidence, the, the Lord Jesus Christ also appeared after his resurrection to the same group, less one, and, uh, Judas being not there any longer, and he gave them the so-called Great Commission. Now the same group of people. He said... Uh, uh, all authority is given to me. All authority. I have authority. And, and all authority is given to me. Therefore, you go and you do this and this and this. You go and you make disciples by evangelizing them. And when you evangelize them, you baptize them. And when you baptize them, you teach them. And you do that because I'm giving you the authority to do it because I have the authority to give. That's really basically what he's saying in the 20th chapter of Matthew. <coughs> So we're talking here as we look at this, at the events that we have before us in, in uh, the book of Acts, the very first chapter, we have the establishment, uh, not the establishment, but the continuation of the church that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew, and which was alluded to later in the 28th chapter of Matthew that I just told you about. And, and I, I point that out to you only because I want you to understand that God works in very orderly ways. We're living in... And, and I don't think it's unique to our times particularly, but we're living in times of freelance Christianity. And what has happened to us, what has happened to the Christian movement, uh, generally speaking, over a long period of time, 2,000 years, is that things devolved in importance. Everything got simmered down to the lowest common denominator. And so that... All that really matters, you can talk to almost anyone. That's why you have so many 
uh, religious organizations today with no names or non-denominational names or fellowships or I mean they're just all over the place and they and they all varying degrees of doctrines and beliefs and practices. The bigger the better, and and they do get to be very large, many of them. the The idea is that. The scripture says the Lord Jesus Christ is to get glory in his church. And I'd like to just make a hypothesis, just something for you to think about. All that Christianity says is bringing glory to Christ is not necessarily bringing glory to Christ. It may be bringing glory, and it may be perceived as glory to Christ. But, the, but God has a very specific way clearly defined about how it is that Christ is to receive glory. And, and, and the reason why I think that we are living on the edge of, of, uh, of, of a crash, a religious spiritual crash in our times is because nobody really cares. Uh, really, nobody really cares. Almost anyone can walk away from any belief system today and still be okay because the lowest common denominator is, hey, you believe in Christ? That's it. I had, I, I had a, a, a very rude uh, uh, awakening a few weeks ago from a man that I have known for, for 30 years uh, who professed to be a Christian who came to our church once 30 years ago uh, during a communion service. I wasn't even sure he was a Christian then, although he said he was. And explained, as I always try to do during communion service, that we, we serve communion to members only because they're the only ones who, who, who this, control has any, this church has any control over, I mean, by either through the discipline or, or whatever it is. I said, so we serve only to members. I didn't serve him communion. That man has never forgotten it. And, and, and 30 years later, on a particular occasion, he began to upbraid me. I mean, he used that as a springboard and then found a lot of other problems uh, in my relationship with him as well. And, and what it really, what, and the whole thing, and his exact words, get off that church stuff, get off that communion stuff, get off that baptism stuff, get off that history stuff, and get down to Jesus Christ. That's what he told me. And I said, well, all that other stuff's in the Bible. Get off that stuff, he said. My point is that what he said in anger, a lot of people say a lot more smoothly and a lot more deceptively today. But I want you to know that God himself is a sovereign God and exercised sovereign choices according to his sovereign will. And we cannot argue against what God has said needs to be done. We can, we can certainly disobey him. And, and many of us oftentimes do. But, but we, I, I assure you, that there will always be some who will not disobey him in the matter of church life and, and church perpetuity. And that's the reason why we're here today, because there have been others the same way who would not disobey him. So you, know, you can make your choices, and you can go your way, and you can simmer everything down to the lowest common denominator and say, as long as I have Jesus, I have everything. And, and that's, that's not true. As long as you have Jesus, you may have eternal life, but you won't have everything. No one has everything unless they're in the pathway of obedience to God. That's when, you, that's when the blessings begin to flow. It's important that we understand these things. You cannot simply say nothing matters because if nothing mattered, this book would be about three pages long. That would be about it if nothing mattered. A lot matters, and we need to learn that.
we need to understand that. Finally, I'd like to, I, I just, I picked this stuff up out of the, uh, a little booklet called The Trail of Blood, and I'd just like to read it, and eh, not read it, I'll just tell you about it. Only born-again, saved people are members of a New Testament church. And only born-again, baptized people are members of a New Testament church. And they are baptized by the authority of the church. They are baptized by immersion. They are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They are baptized not to wash away sins. They are baptized as an act of identification with Jesus Christ in his death, their death to self, burial, their burial of self, their resurrection, identified with his resurrection coming up out of the water as being a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save anyone, doesn't wash away any sins but it is an act of obedience and identification with Jesus Christ. And it's important that we identify with Jesus Christ. That's so one, one of the major items that doesn't matter anymore. Baptism. You can sprinkle. You can pour. You can dunk heads. You can, you can do it all kinds of ways. And it's just not important anymore. But it is important. Because if you don't do it according to the dictates of Scripture, the whole, the whole testimony of it breaks down. New Testament Church believes that the Lord's Supper is the only other ordinance besides baptism, and that it is to be offered to members only, and is a memorial, and celebrated in church capacity only by the church. New Testament Church believes that only the Scriptures, and they alone, are a rule and guide for life, particularly, and I guess probably only, the New Testament scriptures, the Old Testament being a historical book from which we derive considerable information. The New Testament dictates church life. Christ Jesus is the founder of our church, and he is the foundation of our church. He is our only priest. We have no other priests. He is our intercessor between ourselves and God. We go not to the ear of any man to ask him to intercede on our behalf and forgive us for our sins. Jesus Christ is our priest. Uh, Christianity, our, our, our Christianity at least, is personal. It's voluntary, either uh, through the act of the voluntary act of the will or through persuasion. Uh, churches, there are many den denominational names today, and I, I don't really know that Baptist is as val any more valid than any other except that the word Baptist is used so much in the Gospels, be in reference primarily to John, who is called the Baptist. Uh, at any rate, Baptist seems to fit very well uh, for the modes and methods by which we, uh, which we govern ourselves. I just want to just make a, one final note about baptism, and I'll close here. It's a historical note. Constantine, as I'm sure you know, uh, was the emperor of Rome, uh, during which time uh, Christianity became legal, a legal religion. Up until that time, it was not a legal religion in the Roman Empire, and Christians were persecuted. Uh, under almost any, every Roman emperor at one point or another, they were terribly persecuted. <clears throat> Constantine uh, purportedly saw a vision of a sword, a flaming sword in the sky, 
or flaming cross, and I don't really know what it was that he saw. And uh, with the words, by this shall you conquer, and therefore converted to Christianity, uh, assuming that he would be more victorious as a Christian than as a pagan. And so he converted over to Christianity, sort of. And he called all the churches in his realm, all the pastors, to come to a consul. Many came. A lot did not come. The ones who did come uh, ultimately melded into what ultimately became the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Constantine himself uh, had been told that baptism washed away sins. So this is in the third, fourth century, 315 A.D., and uh, so far had the error of ba baptismal error crept into uh, the, the early churches. And since he had been told that baptism washes away sin, uh, to make a whole long story short, he agonized over what to do about, uh, about his baptism and decided that he would wait until his dying moment in order to be baptized because he didn't know what would happen to him if baptism washed away sin, what would happen when he sinned after he was baptized, uh, what would happen to that sin. And so he's genuinely worried about that. He was baptized just before he died in order to make sure that all of his sins were washed away. A little later, the dogma of original sin being washed away was introduced into baptism. Baptism has gone through quite an osmosis, quite an evolution over, a, over nearly a 400, 500-year period. Uh, I can assure you that baptism held by New Testament Baptist churches has undergone no evolution, none whatsoever. We still baptize the way they did in the first century, uh, the same mode, the same method, the same candidate and uh, for the very same reasons, and they haven't changed. Uh, so the church that claims to have never changed has changed a lot, and the church which has existed in concert with the church which never changes and pre-existed it has changed very little. And, and, and the reason why it's changed very little is because there have always been those who have been willing to be faithful and true to what the Word of God says. Now you can't, and what you need to do is look at yourself and, and your own belief system and your own life and determine whether or not you're going to be numbered among those who have for so long honored Christ, honored the Lord Jesus Christ by the obedience of their lives. Remember, God's will is a sovereign will, and to obey it is to please him. To disobey it is not to please him, it's to displease him. That's really what we need to learn. For those of you who are here today and know not Christ, have no personal relationship with him, have no assurance of forgiveness of sins, have no assurance that when you die you're going to go to heaven. Have none of these things. I tell you only this, that Jesus Christ and he alone can forgive you of your sins, wash you in his blood, and stand you firmly upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Now let's pray.